perfect. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your love and thank you for music. And we pray now that you would be with us as we discuss um, the devil's counterfeit for music and just pray that you would guard our hearts from those things and that we would continue to fill our minds with things from above. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last class we talked about God's original plan for music. But now we want to discover the devil's counterfeit plan for music. Because for everything good that God has, the devil has a counterfeit. And we see that in everything. Um, in, in prophecy, in um, doctrines and truths that, that God has, the devil always has his counterfeit. So why would it be any different with music? Um, we saw that for everything good God has, there's something bad out there for us. So we want to look into this a little bit more um, in this class. But I want to ask the question first, simple question, can the devil deceive us on the issue of music? What do you think? Absolutely. All right. Mark 13, 22 is where we're going to start today. Mark chapter 13, verse 22. If I can get there. And it says, For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. We're very familiar with this passage, right? But we don't often think of it in the context of music. My question is, why not? If the devil can deceive us, do you think that he's going to leave something as important to God as music? Do you think he's going to leave that alone? No, absolutely not. He wants to deceive us on the, the, this issue, and the Bible says that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. We learn how important music is to God, so logically Satan's going to try and twist it and confuse us on this issue. He doesn't want us to do anything that's going to please God, right? He wants the exact opposite of pleasing God. So we're going to see that music began in heaven, continued in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. I'm going to read this quote to you from the story of redemption, page 31. It says, The angels united with Adam and Eve in holy strains of harmonious music. And as their songs pealed forth from blissful Eden, Satan heard the sound of their strains of joyful adoration to the Father and the Son. And as Satan heard it, his envy, hatred, and malignity increased. And he expressed his anxiety to his followers to incite them, Adam and Eve, to disobedience and at once bring down the wrath of God upon them and change their songs of praise to hatred and curses to their maker. I read this quote and it really hit me. Because what it's saying is that the devil was listening to Adam and Eve and the angels singing together in the Garden of Eden. And it made him very, very angry. It upset him so desperately to hear them singing those praises to God that he decided in his mind right then and there that he was going to do everything he could to take those songs of rejoicing, those songs of praise, and turn them into songs of cursing. And so he has been trying to do that ever since. Satan hates to hear us sing praises to God, and he's been trying to get us to sing curses instead to God. You know, I think about this, and the question that comes to my mind is, is the devil going to be obvious about it? Because we know when Satan deceives us, it's not an outright lie, is it? Usually he's very sneaky and subtle and deceptive. So he wants us to sing curses 
but do you think he's going to make it in such a way to where we know we're singing curses? Maybe some people, but for the majority of people, for God's people, Satan is going to try and deceive us in such a way where we sing curses to God and we don't even know it. He's very, very sneaky this way, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit. You know, Satan is an expert on the issue of music. It says in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, that Lucifer led the heavenly choir. We're also told that he was an exceptional musician. He could sing four parts at once. That just boggles my mind. You know, we do good just to sing one or two parts, not at once, <laughs> one at a time. But it says he could sing all four parts at one time. Lucifer is a brilliant musician. He knows music inside and out. Satan has made a counterfeit form of music so that we will sing curses to God instead of praises. So let's start looking at this. Exactly how is he doing this? And I want to start off by talking about something that may seem a little obvious to us. Um, and I want to talk about secular music a little bit. Because for me, even though I say it may be obvious, for me, a long time, um, it was not so obvious, you know. As I said, I, I listened to anything and everything, and for a long time I didn't feel guilty about it. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Um, so I want to spend some time talking about this and the dangers of lyrics and secular music um, before I actually get into the music part of a song. The first, it's, this first point, um, as I said, is probably a little obvious to you, but I think that it needs to be covered or it needs to be addressed. Um, so let's start off by reading a familiar text together, Philippians 4.8. Um, very familiar, actually. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So this seems pretty simple, right? We've, we've heard this verse and we repeat it and we go over it over and over again, but at times we make it very difficult for ourselves. This verse, it tells us what things to think on, right? So then the opposite would be true, that we need to logically think that if the things we're listening to, things we're watching, um, entertainment that we are um, being involved in, if they do not follow these principles, then we need to stay away from them, right? So if the music you're listening to doesn't follow the principles in Philippians 4.8, then there's a very obvious thing to say here. It is hurting your relationship with God. And that's what I didn't realize for a long time. I thought, it doesn't have anything to do with my relationship with God. It's just music. It's just something I'm listening to. But if the music you're listening to doesn't follow these principles, then it is hurting your relationship with God, just as in anything else that we're doing. Anything that's not true, lovely, of good report, these different things, whether it be music, TV, entertainment, we need to get rid of it because it's hurting that relationship with God. And so we're actually putting a barrier between us and a holy God. And that's not where we want to be. It's not where I want to be anyways. And when I realized that, it changed my outlook on everything regarding music. So no doubt about it, there's, there's some pretty awful music out there, right? I mean, there's music that talks about adultery and I mean there's music that talks about drugs and murder and all those terrible things and we would not even think twice about listening to that stuff right I mean we know that's awful that's we're not going to listen to that we're Christians but what about the other stuff the stuff that seems seemingly innocent you know those those love songs or those country songs that talk about 
breaking up with the person you're with, go find somebody better, he's going to fulfill every desire in your heart, or, or are those songs that talk about, I lost this, and I lost that, and I lost everybody and everything, and, you know, those things seem funny and innocent, but when you look at them in the light of Philippians 4.8, are those lyrics really drawing you closer to God? Or is it kind of like what I was experiencing where I'm listening to songs just to make me feel a certain way or depressing songs um, that aren't really drawing me closer to God? So ask yourself the question, is the music I'm listening to bringing me closer to God or drawing my mind away from God? Are the lyrics uplifting to me uplifting to me and to God? And if not, then that's probably not what you need to be listening to. It's going to poison your relationship with God faster than just about anything else. And I can say this from personal experience. Um, you know, it's kind of like this roller coaster experience. There were times when I was depressed and I did want to listen to a happy, upbeat song. And maybe the lyrics weren't the best, but they were kind of peppier and so it kind of gave me a high for a little while. And so I would be driving down the road and I'm trying to convince myself that I'm going to be happy and I put this you know, a secular song with these so-called happy lyrics and I'm listening and I feel better for a while. But then what happens when I get home and the music's over? It's like I crash again, right? So you, you listen to music to make you feel a certain way and it gives you this certain high, but then when you face reality again and you still haven't surrendered that to God, you crash again. And so it's this concert. It's just like anything else. I mean, music can be very addictive, can't it? Um, it's just like... A drug. If we, we listen to the wrong kind of music, it can become addictive, and without it, we feel low, so we, we have to listen to more and more and more to get these highs, but at the end, the lows are lower each time. And, uh, and it was really driving me crazy. I didn't want that anymore. So the principle is, fill your mind with things from above. We know that the things of this world really have nothing good to offer us, and so always rem remember the three principles that we talked about in the last class and keep those in mind when you're selecting the music that you listen to. And, you know, unfortunately, I would say that most of the secular music out there doesn't follow the principles in Philippians 4.8. I'm not going to say that all secular music is bad or evil. Um, there may be some, you know, you are my sunshine, my only son. I wouldn't say that this is evil and you need to ban it. Um, but this is the principle that I have to follow because... When, as we talked about earlier, remember, when you start to justify little things, you, it's easier and easier to justify the big things. So there was a time in my life where I said, well, this song is it's not specifically about God, but it's not bad. It's an okay song. The lyrics are fine, you know. Um, and so I would listen to that. And I don't think I was sinning and doing that. But the problem was is that I was getting a little closer. Okay? So then... Something else was on the radio, and I heard it, and I thought, well, that's, that's not so bad. It's an inspirational song, right? It's not so bad. So I'm listening to that, and then more and more and more, and it's that slippery slope that I talked about. And before I knew it, I was listening to every kind of secular music again because I just started to justify everything. So you really have to be careful and follow the principles. And just because um, you think it's an okay song, pass it by the Lord. Pray about it. Make sure that it really is okay in the sight of God. And be careful about that slippery slope because it's an easy one to fall down into. So lyrics and secular music is one thing, but what about lyrics and Christian music? Many times we don't, I mean, it's Christian. What do we need to know about that? Christian music, it's Christian words, and it's good, right? 
But just because music is Christian does not necessarily mean the words are of God. We have to be pay close attention to these following points, and I want to get into these now. Um, Christian music should be about God, not us. That seems really obvious, right? But how many times have you heard a Christian song come on the radio and you wonder if you're on the right station or not? You ever had that experience? I've, I've listened to the song and I think, I thought this was a Christian radio station, but I can't tell if this is a Christian song or not. You know, it kind of sounds like a love song. I can't tell if it's about somebody else or if it's about God or who it's about. It's very vague. And um, it ends up being about the person that's singing or about somebody else and not about God. And we have to be really careful about that because, again, and I realized um, when I was really into certain types of Christian music, I was listening to these popular stations, and they started putting more and more inspirational secular music on their Christian radio stations. And so you can't even distinguish between what's really religious or Christian and what's not. So we have to be very careful because we want to make sure that Christian music is really doing what it was intended to do, and that is to honor God and uplift God and not ourselves. Um, having a hard time here because I'm kind of blind and my notes are like this. <laughs> so, so this vague, very vague love songish music um, is something that we need to be very careful about listening. You know, after I realized um, well, I realize that after I've listened to these types of songs, I'm not really drawn closer to God. Um, I may not necessarily feel bad or be filling my mind with bad things necessarily, but I haven't been uplifted to God either. It's kind of a superficial, shallow, selfish form of singing. Remember, we talked about that selfish form of singing. And it's really, it really doesn't have much to do with God at all, but strictly entertainment or making us feel good. Unfortunately, I, you know, we see a lot of these Christian contemporary artists that um, look a lot like the world, they act a lot like they wor the world, they sing a lot like the world, and you wonder where God is, on, is in all of it. And that's where we have to be really careful. We have to make sure that God is the focus of our music. Several verses in Psalms again. Psalms 9-2 says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. Psalms 21, 13, Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so we will sing and praise thy power. And Psalms 28, 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoiced, and I will sing, and with my song will I praise him. So these again just emphasize the, the purpose of music, praising God. So our songs should have a purpose. They should have a message. It should be deep and meaningful. And, you know, if we have any songwriters in here again, I know you raised your hand. Um, this goes for you, too, because I really believe that God is calling songwriters to a deeper commitment to really write those songs that are deep and meaningful, meaningful and uplift God. You know, you look back at some of the old hymns that our pioneers wrote, and they're so power packed. But, you know, I'm not one that believes that we only have to listen to hymns. I believe that God has created us with a creative mind, and he wants us to write music for this day, godly music. But we need to follow these principles, that it would be deep and meaningful and uplift God. Um, 
The second point that I want to talk about is that Christian music should be clear, not vague or deceptive. This kind of goes along with the first one. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, it says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with understanding also. So the words in a song need to be simple, they need to be clear and easy to understand. Um, we should clearly understand the message being portrayed and not have to wonder about what the artist is really saying. So many times I hear someone sing a song and I think, huh, what was that about? I don't have a clue what they were just singing about. It sounded nice, but I don't know what they're talking about. You know, Martin Luther um, had something to say about this, found this quote online actually. He says, in order to be understood by the people, only the simplest and the most common words should be used for singing. At the same time, however, they should be pure and apt, and further, the sense should be clear. So Martin Luther, um, you know, he was a, a, a very powerful musician, wrote many hymns, and he says, don't use these big fancy words and don't use vague um, words that people aren't going to understand what you're talking about. Make sure that it's simple, it's clear, that people understand the message that you're trying to portray. Because otherwise, what is the point of the song? If people don't understand the message, what is the point? So have you ever listened to a song and thought, well, that was nice. What on earth did they just say? <laughs> Either you can't really, you can't understand them because they're not enunciating clearly, or you just don't understand what the message was all about. And so we need to be careful about these types of songs. Um, I want to come away from a song feeling uplifted and drawn closer to Jesus through the message. And it's especially important if we're hearing these songs in church, because church is a place of worship. And the whole point of any music that we sing in church is strictly worship to God. And so we need to make sure that we understand that message. Um, third point is that Christian music should not consist of vain repetitions. We've heard this probably before, Matthew 6, 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Isn't a song a lot like a prayer? It is our prayer to God. And, and we're specifically told not to use vain repetitions. Um, you know, many of the popular Christian songs out there are very good, uh, meaningful and spiritually uplifting, but I find that there's this fad going around um, in Christian music where it kind of fits into this category of vain repetition. Uh, my husband calls them 7-Eleven songs. You know, sing the same seven words 11 times. <laughs> it's just the same thing over and over and over again. It's almost like they ran out of things to say. You know, they just, they couldn't think of anything else to say, so you keep saying it over and over again. And I know there, there are times in the Bible when things are repeated, and a certain aspect of that is, is not bad. But when we just repeat the same things till they lose their meaning, then we have a problem. Um, a song should never lose its meaning. So have some depth to it. Use more than a few words, um, and don't repeat them to death. <laughs> which happens a lot of times. It's very popular in church because people say, well, they're easy. People can learn them and people can sing them. Put the words on the screen or use the hymnal, please. <laughs> so next, Christian music should be theologically correct. And we think, well, this is another simple one. Of course it should be. But it doesn't always happen, even within our churches. Um, sometimes I, I've been singing a hymn and I stop and I think, wait a minute. That's not what our church believes, but we're singing it. You know, we don't even think about it. And it just goes to show that 
we're not thinking about the words as much as we should. But the message in a song should be true and accurate according to what we believe uh, the Bible to say. And I believe that there are a lot of good um, intending songwriters, you know, people that years ago wrote wonderful hymns, and maybe they didn't believe everything the same way that we do. That doesn't mean that we have to throw out all of their music. But especially uh, when it comes to church and evangelism, we need to make sure that the songs that we're singing um, are theologically correct. You know, there have even been times when I've heard a song and I thought, man, that would be a really powerful song, but it's, you know, there's just a few words that are not correct theologically and I don't want to confuse somebody. And I've actually changed the words um, <laughs> to fit it to be theologically correct. But, you know, we want to make sure a, a song is like a sermon, right? And so if I get up to sing or preach a sermon, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is true and accurate, right? And it's the same thing with a song. So I, I don't want to confuse myself. I don't want to confuse those who are listening. I want to make sure that it is um, sticking along with what the Bible says. So these are some very important points um, regarding Christian music and lyrics that we should pay really close attention to. You know, the devil is really, really too smart to deceive us only in secular music. Um, he's not going to just, he's not going to leave Christian music alone. Obviously, he wants to deceive us there too. So we have to be on guard, I would say, especially when it comes to Christian music. Um, I want to spend some time now, and this will probably be the, the rest of our time, talking about the actual music of a song. And this gets into a little bit more of the details and quotes and maybe a little bit more confusing things. So I'm going to try and take it just one step at a time uh, and talk about how the devil is trying to deceive us in this aspect. Um, you know, we've seen some things in our last class and as we've talked today that music is a reflection of God's character. Remember, it's, it's that reflection of who he is, what he wants to show to us. And we know that Satan wants to mar God's character, right? He, he doesn't want us to see the true character of God. So therefore, Satan is going to confuse us on this issue of music because he wants us to see something completely different about God than what is true. Um, this is actually going to take a little bit more time, but like I said, if we run out of time today, I'll, I'll continue it tomorrow. So we've discussed, or we discovered that the devil wants to deceive us in the area of music, and we've seen how he's deceiving us through some of the lyrics in both the secular and the religious music. But now we want to look and see how he's deceiving us in the actual music of a song. And so once again, there's something we need to remember about deception. And what's that? Is deception outright? Is it obvious? No. Deception is, is not obvious. It's very sneaky, and it, it it just creeps up on us, and before we know it, we're in a trap. And so we don't want to be trapped. We don't want to um, fall into the devil's lies about this. We want to see what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy say on this issue. So as I've studied this topic um, of music in light of the Bible, I can tell you that he is working really, really hard. And as I've gone to different churches and I've talked with different people, I can see that people are completely confused on this issue. So I'm hoping to try and shed some light because as God's people, we don't want to be confused, do we? We don't want to be confused. So uh, I really don't know how else to do this except to just kind of jump into it. And this is where I'm going to start using a lot of Pastor Ivor Meyer's um, stuff from his presentation, Sonic Warfare. And I would encourage you, if you have not watched his presentation or heard it, um, he's on YouTube, Sonic Warfare, go look it up. It's very powerful. Um, Ivor Myers, I-V-O-R. And um, 
it really shook me up when I watched it. I don't have the personality of him or, or the gumption to say or do some of the things that he does, but I'm hoping to share some of the principles, and I want to give you the resources so that you can continue to study more as well. Um, so for you music musicians out there, this is kind of a review. And then for the rest of you, maybe you'll learn something new, right? Um, music is made up of three main parts. Can anybody tell me what the three parts are that music is made up of? My musicians are not paying attention. <laughs> All right, so what are the three parts that music is made up of? It's right there. <laughs> okay, beautiful. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. Any basic music class will tell you that these are the three main parts that make up music. If you take any one of these three parts away, you don't have a song anymore. Um, it just doesn't work. So you have to have these three elements in order to have a song. So the question is, we have these three parts. Now, if music is a reflection of God, let's see if we can find a comparison now between this little principle in music and God. So we've seen the three principles, or we've seen the three parts that make up music, but what are the three parts that make up God? Hmm? Once again, on the screen. <laughs> God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? We believe in this trinity. We believe that it is biblical. There are three parts that make up God. There are three separate entities, but they work together in harmony. And um, so I want to take some time now. This is um, pretty cool, actually. When I heard this, I thought it was really neat. So we have these three parts of music. We have these three parts of God. Music is a reflection of God, so there's got to be some comparisons here, and I believe that there are. Um, we want to start off by the melody, and the melody just simply means the song. The melody is the main part of a song. Um, without the melody, you can't really have the other two. I mean, you can't, you have to start a song with the melody. To try and start a song with just the rhythm or just the harmony would be very difficult, but the melody is the main um, part of a song. It's the main driving part of a song. So in Exodus 15, 2, it says that the Lord is my strength and my song or my melody. So question, let's see if we can find some comparisons here. Out of the Godhead, who do you think represents the melody or the main leading part of the song, the main part of the Trinity? Who would represent that? God the Father, right? He is the main person, the main part of the Trinity. Hmm? Yes, exactly. So he's the head of the Trinity. So obviously, if we're to pick someone, he would represent the melody, right? Now, these other two are really, really neat. Um, we have the harmony, which comes next. And the harmony means simply bringing two together. Now, already your mind's probably turning here, but... We want to find out now who would represent this harmony. If we were to compare this definition to a member of the Godhead, who would fit, do you think? Who would be the harmony? According to 1 Timothy chapter 2.5, do you guys know this verse? 1 Timothy 2.5, it's a pretty popular verse. This talks about, let me flip over here real quick. 1 Timothy 2.5 says... 
and get over there. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So who is the one that brings us together with God? Who is the one that brings two together in the Godhead? Who does that? The Son, Jesus. He is the harmony. He is the one that is our mediator. He's the one that connects us with the Father. And I think this is beautiful because Jesus represents our harmony, the harmony of a song. He's the one that brings us together. And the last one's really cool, too. We have a lot of verses on this, but the last part of, of a song is the rhythm. And the rhythm means the movement of the song. Now, who in the Godhead is referred to as moving or movement? The Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2, I want to read this real quick. There's actually several verses. I just picked a couple um, Genesis chapter 1-2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then in 2 Peter, it also says that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one that's moving. He's working. And you know, I don't think this is full proof necessarily, but I think that this is a really neat concept of the reflection of music being reflected here in the Trinity and the Godhead, that God the Father, he's the main part of the Trinity, the melody, the main part of our song. You have Jesus, who is the harmony. He's the one that brings us together with the Father. And the Holy Spirit, he's the rhythm. He, he's the one that moves. He's the one that gets us to move to do something. So we see these two comparisons between these two different principles here. We see the three parts of music. We see the three parts of God. But what does it mean? I want to look a little bit closer at it. Um, is there a specific order in the Godhead? We know that they're all important. But do we see an order over and over again in the Bible? We see that the Father is the head of the Trinity, right? We the Son, the Holy Spirit, they only do what the Father says. They answer to the Father. The Son, it says, that he does nothing of himself, only to the Father's will. And the Holy Spirit answers to the Father and to the Son. So we see this process of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit over and over again in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is very, very vital in port of the Godhead. But you never see the Holy Spirit as the forefront in your face working. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's always in the background, moving behind the scenes. He's the one whispering to us. He's the one talking to our hearts. He's not in your face about it. And I see this principle that somehow this has to work somehow with music here. Um, I want to go here to this next one here. Um, Holy, I want to read John 16, 13. Before we move on, John 16, 13 says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of himself, but at whatever he will hear, that he will speak, and he will show you things to come. See, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't boast of himself, and he's never in the forefront, but he's always working quietly in the background. So, all three members of the, of the Trinity are equally important, 
yet they have their specific order in place. They all have their different jobs. And if there's a divine order in the Godhead and music is a representation or a reflection of God, then there has to be a divine order for music as well. Now, I could just tell you all the scientific reasons and I could tell you the musical reasons as to why there's an order for music, but I want to look at the divine order for music in comparison to this. Melody, God the Father. Harmony, God the Son. Rhythm, God the Holy Spirit. They have their specific place. So my question, I want to spend some time talking about rhythm because I have to, but where does the rhythm come in this order? At the end, right? Like the Holy Spirit, the rhythm should be quietly moving in the background, not in the forefront. So question, is rhythm bad? Is the Holy Spirit bad? No, without rhythm you can't really have a song, right? The rhythm is the timing of the song. But it should be the least of the three parts. Melody should be first, right? And the Spirit of Prophecy actually talks about that, how the melody should be the main part of the song and that the harmony should come next. Um, the devil has flipped this around though. If we look at it, what is the dominant part of most popular music today? The rhythm, absolutely. Um, and as I said before, the devil, he wants to change our way of viewing God, right? If music is a reflection of God and there's this divine order, if the devil flips the order, then he's complete, completely changed the way that we view God. And we may not realize that right away, but that's what he's doing. He says, if I can just flip things around, then I've changed the way they view God. God has this order. He has a specific order, melody, harmony, rhythm. They all have their perfect place. I'm just going to flip it around, confuse them, and change the way that they view God. So coming back to our question now of finding out how the devil is deceiving us through music, I believe that we've discovered one way. I believe that there are more, way, but I, more ways, but I believe this is one. Once again, if the devil wants to counterfeit something in music, all he has to do is flip the order and he's done it. So what are some types of music that you can think of where rhythm is the dominant part? Rock. Any other? R&B, yeah. Rap, jazz, we can go on and on and on and on. They're known for their rhythm. That's what makes them popular. And yet, from the principles that we've learned, the rhythm should be the least important part of the song. And here, in most of these popular forms, it is the most important. You know, when I was getting ready to make my first CD, I started going to different studios and um, trying to find a place to record. And it was very interesting because at that time I was convicted that for me personally, I was just not going to go, I wasn't going to do the drums at all. I didn't want any question about it. I was going to do a CD strictly instrumental and vocal. So when I started telling these people this at the studios, <laughs> they said, you can't do that. What do you mean I, I can't do that? Well, you can't record a CD with no drums. And I said, well, wh why not? And they said, because Obviously, you have to be able to keep the rhythm and the timing somehow, and you can only do that with a drum. 
And I, and I, well, I did that. Yeah, I kind of looked and like, what are you talking about? Aren't you a musician? My mother's a piano teacher. She's never used a drum in her life in teaching music, and she teaches them how to keep time. That doesn't even make sense. But, so for me, it was completely illogical. But the point is, is that that's what's happened to our thinking, our mentality. It's like, well, if you want to keep time, if you want to keep rhythm, you got to have a big drum set and, ha you know. But that's, that's not, no, that doesn't even make sense, does it? But like I said, that just goes to show how our thinking has been changed over time. So some of you, I don't know, but some of you may be getting a little bit uncomfortable thinking, you know, that I flew all the way here to Montana to tell you drums are of the devil and they're evil and you can never listen to a drum. And, you know, and I've been to seminars like that before. I went to this seminar one time where this person got up and, and they said, basically, drums are of the devil. And they sat down on the piano and they said, and this is this timing, and this is that timing, and this is good, and that's bad. The end, basically, that was the seminar. And I was sitting there thinking, huh? <laughs> what does he just say? And so I'm not here to tell you that. I don't think that an instrument in and of itself is evil. But what I'm saying is, is that there is a divine, I believe, order that God has for music. And rhythm is an important part of music. You have to have timing and rhythm in a song. But if it becomes the most important part of the song, then it is not in that divine order that God has for us. So, we've seen how the devil is trying to deceive us through flipping this order. But what are some of the forms of music? We talked about this a little bit. I want to talk again. Um, some types of popular music where this is the case, where the, the rhythm is the main part. Rock and roll, it's various forms. And many people don't realize that, but all the other types that you mentioned, jazz, techno, soft rock, pop, rhythm, blues, R&B, even country, all have the rhythm at that forefront, and they all kind of stem from rock and roll music. So many times we just think, well, it's rock and roll, obviously. But all these other forms stem off of rock and roll music. It's still the rhythm is the main part. Um, I want to actually read to you a quote that I found really interesting before I go there. You know, I was, when I was preparing for this seminar, I thought, I've got to get some history, something about this, you know, to back up what I'm saying. And, and uh, I was reading um, Samuel Bakioki has a book out on music and several different artists. And I, would, I didn't read through the whole thing. It's a really big book, but there's a lot of really good information. And I read this quote about the history of rock and roll, and I had never heard it before. It was very fascinating to me. So I want to read this to you from that book. Um, it says, the roots of rock music are generally traced to the Negro spirituals, which developed in the deep south of the United States during slavery. And we think, wait, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? Okay, so the simple songs deserve our respect because they express the sufferings and oppressions of the American Negro. Though rhythmic in music, the spirituals always contained a message of hope to be found in God's deliverance of people. So he's not really saying anything bad about the, the Negro spirituals, but he's saying that this is the original root of rock. In time, those blacks who rejected the message of hope of the Negro spirituals developed another musical form to express their suffering and despair. Their music, known as rhythm and blues, became the expression of those who rejected any divine solution to their plight. The mood of the blues is one of sadness and despair, punctuated by, uh-oh, I don't have it. Where did it go? Punctuated by, I have it here. Hold on a second. 
punctuated by a regular heavy beat. After World War II, the beat of the blues became intensified with electric guitars, bass, and drums. This became known as rock and roll music. What did he just say? He said that there was this thing called Negro spirituals. You had a group of slaves who believed in God, and they were sad, and they were despairing, but they were hopeful, and someone who would help them and take care of them. And they created these beautiful songs that some, we have some of them in our hymnal today called Negro Spirituals. But what happened was at that time, there was another group of slaves who said, we reject God. We don't want to find our hope in God. We want to find our hope in ourselves. They rejected those beautiful songs that had been written, and they said, we're going to start our own form of music, one that talks about our sadness and our despair. And it was a bitter type of music. And that music became known as rhythm and blues, which is still popular today. But then what happened was after World War II, for lack of better phrasing, but the white people said, we want our own music too. And they liked the rhythm and blues, and they intensified that type of music with the electric guitars, more drums, bass drum, all these things, and created what we know as rock and roll music. This was very fascinating to me when I read that. I thought, man, so you're telling me that rhythm and blues, rock and roll, that its origins come from people that specifically rejected God. They created this music as basically a way to throw it in God's face and say, we don't need you. When I heard that, it blew me away. I thought, man, what am I doing listening to it if that's the case? Regardless of all the scientific facts of how it's affecting my brain and what it's doing to my body, that's important. But regardless of that, just the history alone, I don't want anything to do with that type of history. I want to be a part of music that shows my hope in God and glorifies God. Um, you know, the fact is that there's nothing good, moral, godly about these types of, of music. There just isn't. I, I could try and tell you the good things about it, but they don't exist. And as Christians, this is something that we need to stay away from. We need to be involving ourselves in music that is going to glorify God. So, but, but other than history, and I've read some from history, but is there anything within the music itself that makes it dangerous for us. Um, I've already mentioned this to a certain degree, but I want to emphasize it a little bit more before we move on, if I can get my computer to work here. Anybody know what I did? <laughs> Help. <laughs> there we go, okay. <laughs> so point two, the dangers of rock and roll. We've already talked about this, that rhythm is the dominant part, not the melody, right? that this goes against the order that God has for us. Um, it was very interesting, actually, when I went to Ukraine. I was so worried about doing this music seminar in Ukraine because I thought, I don't know the culture, I don't know the people, you know, what, how am I supposed to relate to them? So I get in Ukraine and I'm traveling on the taxis and these different places, and I'm listening to Aerosmith, and all these different American, like, rock and roll, hard rock, you know, musicians. And these people don't even speak English, but they're listening to our music over there. And I thought, never mind, I don't think I have anything to worry about. And when I stood up and I started asking these students to name off different styles of popular music, 
they knew more than I did that we listened to in America. And they said basically, um, it was fascinating that during communism when Russia was controlling Ukraine, that rock and roll and different things were not allowed. They were against the law, you couldn't listen to them. So when communism fell, people went crazy with freedom and they wanted everything that they couldn't have. So that was the good and the bad. And unfortunately, where was the place that had all of the great so-called music was America. So they came and they got all of their rock and roll and the music that they listened to from America and it's still over there today. And now they have their own as well, but it's the same. It just has different um, language to it. So moving on, I'm reading a couple of quotes to you. It says, the rhythm in rock is the dominant part of the sound. The heavy emphasis on the beat is what distinguishes rock from every other type of music. This is from Frank Garlock, Music in the Balance. And then uh, Charles Brown, Art of Rock and Roll, says perhaps the most important defining quality of rock and roll is the beat. Rock and roll is different from other music primarily because of the beat. So we see that rock and roll, these other forms of music, they have a trademark, don't they? And that's the heavy beat that drives the music. Um, so this is the case in many types of music. Uh, it's a well-known fact that many popular forms of music have all come from rock and roll music. And sometimes we think, well, soft rock, you know, that's okay, because it's soft. But still, the rhythm is still driving the music. It's not the melody. It may be a quieter version of it, but it's still the main part of the song. Um, something else, too, that I want to talk about, and I'm running out of time quickly, so we'll have to move this on to tomorrow. But, um, is something that really confused me for a long time because I would listen to songs that were really, really beautiful and really good up to a certain point. And so you'd have this beautiful instrumental music and you know, maybe just a, a rhythm, a slight rhythm in the background. And, and then all of a sudden you get to this thing called the bridge. You guys know what a bridge is in a song? It's a part that builds from one part of the song to the next part of the song and connects them together. And so I remember I'd go listening to soundtracks to sing with in churches, and I'm looking for a good song, and I'm listening, oh, this is beautiful, beautiful, and then wait for it, wait for it, man, and then just the drums come in and the beat takes over, and for the rest of the song, you have this driving beat again. And so this is another way I believe the devil is trying to confuse us and to deceive us when some people know, okay, there's something about the beat being in the forefront. It's, it's not good. But if it's only a small part of the song, then it's okay. And I, I used to be that way. I used to think that way. And now looking back at it, that's not rational at all. Because that's how the devil wants to get us, is in the small ways. So whether it's for all of the song or a small part of the song, the principle is, is that the melody, harmony, and then the rhythm to follow that divine order that God has for music. Um, I'm really about out of time, and I'm thinking about if I should go into the next part or not. I'll, I'll go on for just a couple more minutes. You know, brings us back to this question. Are drums evil? Are they of the devil, as many people will tell you? No. You know, rhythm is, is not bad. The, the drums in themselves are not evil. But number one, the rhythm must have its proper place. Number two, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow, popular drums today were very different than percussion that was used in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to get into that quite a bit, actually. And the effects of drums change, the effects on us of the drums change based on how they are played. So I have had people say, 
Well, there are percussion instruments, there are drums used in the Bible, so it's got to be okay. My question to them is, the popular drum that we use in rock and roll and these different types of music today did not even exist in biblical times. Okay, so I'm just going to throw that out there at first. Um, but secondly, and this is that point here, the effects of drum change based on how they are played. We're also going to talk about that tomorrow. So it's not the percussion instrument itself that is evil or that is bad. It's, is it the main part of the song? Is it the driving part of the song? And how is it played? How is it affecting us? And so I'm going to actually stop there, and we're going to talk about this again tomorrow. So you have to come back, because if you don't, you're just stopping in the middle here, and that's not good. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so, all right. Anyways, let's um, actually... Yeah, let's pray together, and then we will close out. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we thank you for this very interesting, complex subject of music. We know that you have many things to tell us, and we just pray that we would honor and glorify you in this aspect, and that we would not be confused, but that we would learn exactly what you want us to know. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>